science story. Huh. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about the relationship between our bodies and ourselves. The very first story that I ever told a story quieter back in 2011 was about my body. It was called Just Those Four Things, and you can find it on our website. More specifically, it was about my vagina and a terrible adventure it once had. Since then, I've gotten to share that story in a lot of places, including at women's health conferences and at the Kennedy Center in 2013 when we spoke at TEDMED. You would be amazed how many people want you to tell a story about your vagina without actually saying the word vagina. Something about that word really bothers people. I don't know why. Vagina, vagina, vagina. I think it's great. (laughs) Anyway, our two storytellers today will not be talking about their vaginas, but about their own fraught relationships with their bodies. Our first story today is from John Trumbo. It was recorded in April 2018 at Beer Baron in Washington, D.C., The theme that night was expectations. I come from a family of baseball players. My father was a pitcher, and he tried to get me interested in the game by throwing balls to me in the front yard, but it never really worked. I sucked, actually, at anything having to do with upper body strength or coordination. I actually played on a few little league uh, teams, but uh, anytime I tried to return a ball, hit into the outfield, it like barely reached the baseline. But turns out there is a good reason for my lack of performance and enthusiasm. On uh, an annual physical in the third grade, our family doctor diagnosed me as the M&M man, which stood for missing muscle man. That's because I was born without a right pectoral muscle, thanks to a congenital disorder called Pollen Syndrome. Pollen Syndrome affects about two in every 100,000 newborns and is three times more likely in boys than girls. The usual manifestation is a lack of a chest muscle, but other symptoms include webbed fingers or toes. No one seems to really know what causes Pollen Syndrome, but researchers theorize that somewhere around the 46th day of pregnancy, there is a disruption of blood to embryonic tissues that help build the chest wall. All I knew at the time was I was different from my male friends and classmates. As we grew older, their shirts filled out more fully and completely while mine kind of sagged awkwardly down the right side. I also began to realize that I was gay, which added to my level of anxiety. Now my parents never really talked to us about sex or uh, sexual attraction. But we were devout Southern Baptists, and I soon figured out, or so I believed at the time, that God really wasn't cool with two men lying with each other. Um, But that's what I believed at the time. Nevertheless, uh, I I knew I had this attraction to men and the male body. I remember the old, like, Charles Atlas ads in the back of my comic books where the big muscle dude comes up to the skinny, wimpy guy on the beach and kicks sand in his face next to his girl, and his girl's like, what? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But 
I knew uh, that I, I, the more I, I began to realize that I wouldn't have that perfect male body that I sought after. That is until I discovered the science, uh, until I discovered science and reconstructive surgery. In 1992, when I was 27, um, in the back pages of a pre-Google research device called the phone book, <laughs> I found a nearby plastic surgeon whose office was located in a somewhat seedy strip mall. And most of the literature in the waiting room was geared at women seeking boob jobs. Uh, the doctor said he had heard of my condition, uh, but my insurance company denied my claim because they considered it just plastic surgery. But I kept searching, and nine years later in 2001, thanks to the internet and a real surgeon at a major university hospital, uh, my, my, uh, my new insurance carrier uh, approved my request for chest wall reconstruction with CPT 19340. My parents were supportive when I told them of my decision, but frankly, I don't think they had ever thought about my missing muscle since my diagnosis. Like a lot of things, we just never talked about it. Nevertheless, my father agreed to drive me to the surgery, and on that morning of the surgery, uh, he and I sat facing each other in, the, in a hospital exam room while I waited for my doctor. I had my shirt off, which was a little uncomfortable. It had been years since I'd had my shirt off in front of my father, and he could clearly see the bright sun tattoo that I have on my upper arm now. Now, I was uncomfortable revealing the tattoo to him because as a freshman in college, I got my ear pierced. Now, that's not such a big deal, but my parents hated it. I mean, they really hated it. Uh, my mom reminded me something that the Bible said about men not acting feminine. But what was worse is that my dad didn't or couldn't speak to me for quite a while. The surgery itself went fine and was over in an instant from my perspective. As I slept, someone had indeed slipped a new muscle into my chest, but it, instead of a soft, cushiony implant, it felt more like a boulder someone had put in there. Uh, a little while later, in a private recovery room, my father knocked on the door and poked his head in and said, how did everything go? And I said, fine, I think, come on in. He proceeded to tell me about everyone that he had met while he waited for me uh, in the cafeteria, a nice couple from Richmond, a man from a small town where he used to teach school. My dad didn't talk much about his feelings or emotions, but he had this amazing ability to engage you in small talk until you felt like you had known him all your life. Later, when I was released from the hospital, uh, I cradled my right arm against my chest as we walked out to the, to the car. My pain medication was wearing off and we still had a 90 minute drive home and I just wanted to get home. But my father, being the good southerner that he is, suggested that we stop and get something to eat. He sees food, actually, as the, the great healer, and this was his way of, of wanting to help me uh, feel better. But I cringed as we pulled into the parking lot of an all-you-can-eat family restaurant with a line of tour buses circling the parking lot. My father got us a table and offered to get me a tray of food, but I said, I think I can probably manage myself. But when I came back to the table, holding just a bowl of chicken soup and some biscuits, he looked at me with this look of betrayal. Uh, what, 
I said, I told you I'm not hungry and my pain medication is wearing off. Again, I know he wanted to, to help me, but he looked helpless, un, unable to, not sure how to reach out to his aching son. So once again, we filled the time with small talk, missing yet another opportunity to come clean with each other, or more importantly, for me to explain to him why this surgery had been so important to me, something that I thought I'd wanted for 36 years. Eventually, I discovered that I was missing more than a muscle in my chest, something that an expensive silicon implant with CPT code 19340 couldn't fix. It couldn't fix this feeling of feeling a little defective or not exactly who or what I thought I was supposed to be. Today, I'm out to most people in my life, and it's generally not an issue. But I never came out to my parents before they both passed away. I always look for the right opportunity about as many times as I prayed that God would heal my chest but I but I knew what they believed about homosexuality and frankly I was afraid to risk losing my relationship with them but having never revealed my true whole self to them while I had the chance was the real deformity that I'll never be able to fix fill in or repair. Thank you. That was John Trumbo. John is a senior healthcare writer with a master's in nonfiction writing from Johns Hopkins University. He writes about transforming the care experience with the help of innovative health IT solutions that put patients first. Our next story today is from Emma Yarbrough. It was recorded in March 2018 at the Highland Inn and Ballroom in Atlanta as part of the Atlanta Science Festival. The theme that night was Unexpected Encounters. Strangers talk to me about my height all the time. Seriously, all the time. They ask me how tall I am, and then when I tell them, they say that I have to be wrong, that I'm taller than I think I am, which, like, why I would lie about something like that, I don't understand. Uh, They ask me if I play basketball, and they ask me if I play volleyball, and every now and then, um, someone will ask me if I'm a model, and I like that kind of stranger. I even one time had a woman in a Walmart in South Alabama ask me, if, can, I, can I take your picture? <sighs> you know, I, the, I thought about this a lot. And the best way that I can kind of explain it or make you understand from your, you know, normal-sized bodies is it's kind of like when you break your arm or when you have a black eye and everywhere you go, people ask you what happened. Um, People are just driven to talk to you about the thing that makes you different, especially if that thing is innocuous, like height. Uh, And, you know, I've always been tall. I never went through a huge growth spurt. I just, you know, my parents say I came out of the womb like a spider monkey, just like all arms and legs. And uh, in my kindergarten class photo, I look like the fourth fourth grader that got lost and wandered into the back row. You know, as a kid, I really wanted to be an Olympic gymnast. And I think under special circumstances, parents have a duty to squash their kids' dreams. (laughs) But 
instead of telling me that at eight years old, I was already taller than most members of the 1996 Olympic team, the Magnificent Seven, Carrie Strug forever, um, my parents let me and my scrawny ass legs struggle against the laws of physics for literal years. <laughs> and they let me quit piano lessons when, look at these fingers. <laughs> and swim team, look at this wingspan. I like actually could have been one of the greats. I don't know when it was that I discovered that different is synonymous with imperfect, but I have a guess. I think it was sometime around third grade when mysterious spots popped up all over my body. A few doctor's appointments and a biopsy later, we discovered that I had severe psoriasis, which is an autoimmune disease. It's really common. I'm sure you've heard of it, but it's not usually as bad as it was in my case, and it was incurable. Um, you know, middle school was fun. <laughs> By seventh grade, I was, you know, pushing six feet tall and weighed maybe 90 pounds when wet. And my skin was 75% covered with a disfiguring, red, flaky, itchy, inflamed rash. Mm. <laughs> so, but then, you know, in high school... A miracle. After I had already decided, you know, I'm never going to be pretty, so I might as well just be smart and funny, which, you know, thank God for that. And after wearing uh, long sleeves and jeans in the South Alabama heat and bending my knees in school photos as if that would change my reality, all of a sudden, this miracle. Immunosuppressant drugs hit the market, and my skin started to clear. So I graduated, and I made my way out of my tiny South Alabama hometown where the only thing worshipped as fervently as sweet baby Jesus is normalcy, and came here to Atlanta, to Emory University, where I first discovered theater. And the thrill of being visible on my own terms. You, the audience, are looking at me right now but you're doing it because I'm choosing for you to look at me, not because I'm the tallest woman you've ever seen. And that distinction makes a huge difference to me. And it makes me feel very powerful in a way that I don't feel powerful when I'm just walking amongst you. <laughs> so now that I'm older and my skin is clear, um, my relationship with my height remains complicated. On the one hand, sure, there are a lot of pros to being this tall. You know, also, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm like, I'm comfortable in my skin now. Like, take it or leave it, right? But also, like, when you're tall, uh, you can see the stage at concerts, no matter how far back in the crowd you are. It's really useful. Um, tall people, on average, get paid more money. Uh, not that I'm doing anything to change those numbers, but you know, like, it's nice to know that the potential's there. Um, and I can reach things up tall, no big deal. You need me to get something, I got you. But there are also cons to being this tall. For one thing, airplanes. Airplanes are awful, yeah, right? Terrible. Uh, dating could certainly be easier, um, but I mean, dating could always be easier. Um, and just in general, like, uh, while tall people make more money, they also live shorter lives. 
because gravity is harder on us, you know? Uh, a, a smaller machine is more efficient. And I really started to first experience these kind of like negative health effects of being tall a few years ago when I was in yoga and my shoulder popped out a joint just doing a routine stretch. Um, a few months after that, I woke up and I couldn't breathe without this really sharp pain in my chest. And I uh, couldn't stand up straight either. And I went to the doctor and a chiropractor and found out that what had happened was my rib had disconnected from my spine. Yeah, I know. Apparently it was from uh, sitting, it's common if you sit in a desk, which I do, um, and because my torso is so long that like hunching over a computer position is more exaggerated and so it stretches those muscles out, right? And you know, the health problems don't really stop with that. It's, uh, I'm on immunosuppressant drugs, which are no joke. Um, my mid to late 20s have been kind of riddled with mysterious infections. Uh, I had dermatitis in my scalp for some reason. I, I had strep throat that went untreated for so long I ended up with scarlet fever. Um, I had pneumonia. You know, so I go to the doctor a lot to stay on top of my health. And it was at a routine physical this past fall that a doctor first looked at me and asked if I had ever been tested for Marfan syndrome. And my heart dropped because that sounds serious, right? And, you know, it's also one of those moments that you always fear, like a doctor looks at you with concerned eyes in their head at like a very grave angle. Um, and, you know, while I'm used to health problems, obviously, and the, and the uh, being on immunosuppressants, the like vague threat of side effects gone awry, you know, increased risk of tuberculosis and cancer. But the closest I had ever like actually come to confronting more, my mortality was the morning after eating a lot of beets for dinner, forgetting that I had eaten a lot of beets for dinner. <laughs> And like looking at the toilet before I went to flush and be like, oh my God. <laughs> I think you remember and it's fine. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so now I'm like doing research and I'm finding out that Marfan syndrome is a genetic disorder that affects your connective tissue, which, you know, obviously affects your joints, your limbs, making them long and thin. Um, but it also affects your eyes and your lungs, and most ominously, your heart. So now I'm being referred to a geneticist who, exasperated that I haven't gotten an echocardiogram yet, refers me to a cardiologist who orders the echocardiogram that I quietly cry through because it's actually kind of painful, which I didn't expect, and the idea that there might be something wrong with my heart makes me feel incredibly fragile. Um, and now I'm getting a call from the cardiologist to tell me that my echocardiogram was abnormal. And I'm being called in and told that my aorta is too large and that I have to go on medicine for the rest of my life to prevent an aortic dissection, which is very scary. Look it up. Um, and I'm being told that my body may not support carrying a child which is devastating to me. Um, and now I'm being sent back to the geneticist who, you know, uh, examines all of these parts of my body like I'm a specimen, but never once looks me in the eye and I'm getting the genetic test results. And the doctor first asked the question in August and six months 
five doctor's appointments later, I finally get the answer. This patient is heterozygous for a, oh man, I've really studied this. This patient is heterozygous for a something variant, it's not important, that is pathogenic in the HBN1 gene, consistent with a diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. So, there it is. I have Marfan syndrome. The FBN1 gene controls the um, building of proteins that make up your connective tissue, and mine basically just has shitty instructions. So, you know, a lot of things go through your mind when you get a life-changing diagnosis like this, but me, for the most part, was just like, how was I not diagnosed before now? I have grown up in doctor's office amongst all my friends. I'm the person that's at the doctor the most, getting tested the most, getting x-rayed the most. Like when I was younger, my parents were there with me in the doctor's office and nobody noticed that my mother, who's a miniature person, <laughs> and my dad, who's just like average tall, produced this WNBA all-star sized, <laughs> like, like Olympian sized child. Nobody was like, hmm, that's strange. And my whole life, it was like this big mystery. I was like, I don't know. You know, like growth hormones and food, I guess. Or like, maybe I'm a superhero. Like, I didn't think, you know, what if there's a reason that I'm so tall? <sighs> you know, I turned 30 through all of this. I turned 30 somewhere between um, the doctor telling me that my aorta was too big and the genetic test results coming back. And 30 is a really strange age for, you know, half the people, they're like, you're so young. You're just, you're just starting out your adulthood or whatever. And then the other half, the younger set are like, 30 is the end of a timeline. Like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. And then I'm just going to turn 30 and like live. And then I'm going to die. And then that's just it, right? <laughs> so here I am, like 30, feeling like very young, feeling very healthy, but scheduling appointments with cardiothoracic surgeons because chances are I'm going to have to have open heart surgery one day. And it just like, doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, the... The thing about it that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around is this shift from my height being this characteristic that I've worked so hard to be proud of, to feel comfortable about. It took a long time, and I got there, you know? And now, when people ask me, as they do all the time, about my height, instead of, at best, being like somewhat alienating, it's you know, a not-so-gentle reminder of my genetic wiring being out of whack. You know, it's no longer a characteristic. This is a symptom. It's an external manifestation of an internal threat. So, I don't know. I, I just found out about this, you guys. Like, it's been two months. So my ability to reflect on my experience is severely limited. But here's what I got. Uh, first of all, I'm incredibly lucky. 
to have found out about this. About half of the people that have Marfan syndrome, they think, don't know that they have it. And there isn't any warning for aortic dissection apart from them imaging your heart and seeing that your aorta stretch. It's not like you start to feel sick and then it happens. It just happens. So I could have lost my life in an instant. So that's lucky. And It's lucky. It is. I promise. And also, like, the thing about it is that I don't have to get heart surgery today. I don't have to get it next week. I don't know when I'll have to get it. All I have to do today is finish telling this story, and I'm almost done now. So <laughs> I'm ahead of the game, right? And while it's not, you know, an exactly welcome return to what it was like when I was in middle school and I had this health problem that people felt driven to comment on all the time, middle schoolers are really good at that, you know, like, oh, is that poison ivy? Or is it contagious? Or just like your general, because they're so subtle. Um, <laughs> so yeah, now I'm like going back to that existence where people ask me about my height all the time. <laughs> but... The thing is, I have had a lot of time to think about my upbringing and what it was like to grow up in this body that I have, and I know without a doubt that it made me funnier, it made me more creative and empathetic, and just generally more interesting. Like, 5'7", Emma, with perfect skin sounds insufferable, really. <laughs> like, who wants to be friends with her, you know? So also, there's one more plus. There's this, there's this fantasy scenario I have. I don't know if I'll ever have the balls to do it, but like maybe one day I'm going to like have a drink and feel feisty. And someone's going to come up to me, probably a guy. It's always a guy, actually. It's always a man. It's going to come up to me, and this is, what, this is what's going to happen. He's going to be like, hey, how tall are you? And I'm going to tell him. And then he's going to go, no, 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 you're not that tall. You're at least 6'4" because I'm 6'3", and you're taller than me. And then I am going to turn to him with ice in my veins, because that's something, I'm on beta blockers now, and they like block your adrenaline. <laughs> so with ice in my veins, I'm going to turn to him, and I'm going to say, oh, God, I know this is really hard for you. But here's the thing. I have a genetic disorder that makes me this tall, and I've seen no less than five doctors this year, and each time they've measured me. So while I know that you really want to believe that you're 6'3", and I'm sorry that this is hard for you to hear, but darling, you're 5'11". <laughs> and I am 6'1", motherfucker. <laughs> Thank you. was Emma Yarbrough. Emma is a theater artist, writer, and story enthusiast based in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as one of the producers and hosts of our Atlanta-based Story Collider show. A graduate of Emory University, she just couldn't let go of that liberal arts lifestyle and now serves as a communications specialist for the arts at Emory. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringholm, Shane Hanlon, Kelly Vinyl, and Emma Yarbrough, with help from Mesa Salida. 
The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Beer Baron and the Highland Ballroom for hosting these shows and to Bodies for being pretty dang amazing, especially the ones with vaginas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>